Welcome to Trauma and Pop Culture, a monthly podcast where we seek to make knowledge about trauma accessible to the everyday person through analyzing books, movies, TV shows, and other elements of popular culture through a trauma lens. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'm a trauma recovery coach. I also have a master's degree in religion and cultures and work with survivors of trauma on a regular basis. A word about popular culture. This could be material from modern times, like a Taylor Swift song, or it could be something really old that has retained its relevance over time, like Shakespeare. On most of the episodes on trauma and pop culture, I'll be bringing other mental health professionals into the conversation, but occasionally it'll just be me. While we will be sharing general information about trauma, we are not diagnosing anyone, which is one of the reasons we'll likely stick to fiction most of the time. Please be advised that every discussion assumes everyone has listened to or read or watched said popular item. Expect spoilers around every corner. Occasionally, we'll record these episodes while drinking or eating, so you'll often hear us discuss our food and beverage choices. Just wanted to give you a heads up. If you have questions about trauma or a show or movie or anything you think would be great to analyze, send it to traumaandpopculture at gmail.com. As I mentioned, I am a trauma recovery coach who also works with clients one-on-one. If you're interested in working with me, you can visit my website, katherinespearing.com slash coaching for more information and use the contact form to reach out. While you're on my website, you can sign up for my monthly mailing list, where I'll send out more tidbits about trauma, what popular culture stories I have found helpful on my own trauma recovery journey, plus a few other things you might enjoy. While the tone of this podcast is mostly lighthearted and fun, we will be discussing trauma. There might be some elements that are activating, especially if you're a trauma survivor. So move slow, take care of yourself. If you find yourself overwhelmed, you can always take a break and come back later. For this episode, I'm with my friend and colleague, Kate West. If you're interested in learning more about the impact of high control religion, known as religious trauma, check out my other podcast, Uncertain. Kate and I did an episode over there diving into more specifics about our experiences growing up in Christian fundamentalism. I'll post a link to that episode in the show notes. Also, keep an eye out for Kate's memoir about leaving Christian patriarchy, which releases in spring 2024. Extra content warning for this episode, as we will be discussing child physical abuse. Okay. You still haven't seen it, right? I have not. So I am very curious to hear your take on it was and for listeners I did not watch it and that is part of my trauma care in that I just didn't want to relive it in a documentary since I did live it I think it's very important and what I am so grateful for this documentary and it has taken my experience and my life and made it mainstream so now when I say I grew up in a cult and people look at me like I'm super weird And then I say, shiny, happy people, suddenly donning light bulbs behind their eyes of like, oh, I get it now. So I'm very grateful for that. So very grateful for the documentary. Yeah. What was your experience watching it, having grown up with so many things that happened within the documentary? So I didn't grow up in IBLP, but I grew up with Vision Forum. So it was very related. I think Gothard was a mentor to Doug Phillips at some point. So it was very similar. And I knew, I think I knew everything 
that the documentary covered already because I've done a lot of research in writing my book. And I was going into it kind of worried because I didn't, you know, I didn't know how I would feel. And I did feel kind of sick watching it, to be honest. And I watched it with my spouse, who was a support person for me because he didn't grow up that way. And it helped him understand more about my story, even though we've been together for like 11, 12 years, there was things he didn't know. So that helped. I was really happy with the amount of time they gave to the survivors in the documentary. They did have experts like Kristen Dumais talk about the history and the context, which I think is really important and helpful. And then they gave a lot of space to the survivors, particularly the children who grew up in IBLP. So I think that was major for a documentary. A lot of times they don't talk to survivors or they skew their stories to fit some kind of narrative. And I think that they did a good job of honoring those experiences. Or they or they focus on the perpetrator a lot and do right. a lot of clips of the perpetrator. And, and that's helpful to some extent, but when the survivors' voices have been the ones that have been suppressed and taken away that's that's really cool to hear they definitely did have you know clips of gothard and the duggars and i think the duggars was like the way in for the story i think a lot of the time was was spent on iblp but i think the duggars is what most people will come to it if they didn't grow up that way they'll come to it knowing who the duggars were and that was their way in to tell the story of iblp so there was definitely lots of clips of the duggars if you're worried about seeing those kinds of clips you can always skip through those or but there is a lot of that was there anything you said you were familiar with everything was there anything that showed up in it that you were like oh I didn't know about that or came as a surprise it was validating in the sense of just seeing how these teachings were so widespread not just in my own family I think what I hadn't seen before was like content warning on on child abuse they showed some clips of spanking demonstrations. So, you know, like the the pearls. And then there was this other person I didn't know. And they actually had a child from the audience come up. And basically this teacher was demonstrating how to spank the child and he was touching him. And to me, I, that is sexual abuse in a very public place. And that was something I've never seen you know, I've never seen that clip. So stuff like that is really difficult to watch. Oof. Yeah. And that's one of the, I think one of the things that I think is underestimated and how it continues to impact just like wider culture is just like getting to mask spanking as like discipline and something that is good for your child. And that comes from that culture and is very pervasive and wider culture and wider evangelical culture. Yeah. It made me even feel more strongly about what I think about spanking and in physical discipline. I have like zero tolerance for that now. There's a time when I was like in between because I was told like that's what the Bible says to do. But now it just even just seeing another parent do that, I just can't handle it. It just it's not okay. I'm 100% with you. Don't think that any form of hurting your child to get them to behave is appropriate. Maybe a very like narrow window for like actually removing them from danger. 
like, right. out of harm's way. Yeah. <laughs> a very small window for that, but like hurt, hurting your child to achieve a behavior or a desired result. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who are like very anti-spanking. And then I have friends who still spank their kids. And that's really hard for me to just be like, I love you. I respect you. But I think that this is abuse. And there's so many, there's, I think in the church, it's such a common thing. Yes. And that's why it's, they don't link the word abuse to it because it's so normalized. In the documentary, they didn't link the word abuse to it. No, I just mean in church in general, I've, I've known a lot of people who spank their kids, but they would never think of it as abuse because the teaching of, you know, disciplining your child with the rod is normalized. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of how all of spiritual abuse right, is, yeah. is an excuse for all of spiritual abuse is somehow masked with the Bible. And this is, this is God's way. And that's why it's so confusing when you're trying to unpack the damage mm-hmm. that that type of teaching does is because it is so masked in this religious, this is good for you. The Lord wants this, even if you're struggling with it. Cause I would say that like, I know friends who like had a season where they did spank and they felt just weird about it and they felt really wrong. It didn't feel right, but because they were told that's what good parents are supposed to do they did it until they finally were just like, if I don't feel good about this, I'm not going to keep doing it. Even if all of these religious teachers are telling me this is what good parents do. And then just, and then just not being able to talk about it publicly that they didn't spank their kids because they would be shamed yeah. for not spanking their children. Well, yeah. cause like you grew up saying like, it's sinful not to spank your children. Yes. So- Absolutely. No, I was literally just just working on this. So I'm writing a book about my experience growing up. Part of the book is my experience growing up in this world. And I was just literally working two days ago on a section of the book where my parents said the reason why other families didn't have as many kids is because they're, they didn't spank their children and they didn't know how to discipline their children. So they couldn't handle their children. But the reason why my parents could handle so many kids is because their kids were so well-behaved because of spanking. Um, and also because of me, because I do. <laughs> I was a parentified child who took care of my younger siblings, right. but they, but they, yeah, like that was like, these parents are parenting wrong because they're not spanking their kids and because they're not disciplining their kids. So that is a really hard world community to like exist mm-hmm. in and grow up in. And, and just one of, one of the experiences of growing up in this world. What else do you think would be helpful for folks to know about just that experience of growing up in this world? The episodes assumes that people have watched Shiny Happy People, so not necessarily having to go into anything featured in that unless something is coming up for you that feels important. I think what strikes me, I watched it a little bit a second, a second time and thinking about how children are used as tools for the kingdom of God. Yeah. And they're objectified in this sense that they're not full people in this world. And I think I experienced that feeling of, I don't own myself. I don't own my body. I am supposed to be fill this role in my family. And then I'm going to get married. I'm going to fill that role. And then that's God using me, Mm -hmm. but really it's other people using you. 
yeah. you know, it's, it's your parents, it's your church leaders using you for an agenda. Mm-hmm. And especially when you see it all together with the television show, the Duggars and how they use their children to make money yeah. and, you know, the saying it's a ministry, it's just so disturbing to me, but that happened to so many of us who weren't on television, right? Yeah. Like I can't count the many times I was used as an example of this is what happens when you spank your kids. And when you teach them this way and you don't let them move out when they turn 18, I was the example of that for many years. And so I was, I felt used, you know, I didn't have a choice in that. And so this just lack of personal autonomy, bodily autonomy, it's really striking when you see it on children in this kind of world. But I mean, I think that comes back to the view of God and the spiritual abuse aspect of that, of saying your heart is deceitful, your body's not your own. You become this, you kind of objectify yourself mm-hmm. in a way, even as an adult. Mm-hmm. And any any form of discomfort, rather than that being a sign that something might be wrong or might be off, it is a sign that I am wrong and there's something wrong with me and I need to do something about my heart and my emotions so that I can adapt to this community and be what I need to be within this community. An example that was coming to my mind as you were talking was not being allowed to go to college. And my, my dad wanted me to say, whenever someone asked me, why aren't you going to college? He wanted me to say, I'm staying home to prepare and be a wife and mother and like say it super cheerfully. And I just couldn't do it. Like it just felt like just like I felt so degraded and demeaned and I I wasn't able to make this connection of like this really isn't my choice like I just why I just couldn't do it and I also couldn't say the truth which was my parents aren't letting me go so I have to stay home because then that would make my parents look bad and I I always fumbled it every time anyone and I would just try do everything I could to kind of avoid Mm-hmm. answering that question and like stay away from it and anytime things like turned to what are you doing after high school I would just kind of exit extricate myself but then of course there were inevitable times where my dad was there when someone asked me and I wouldn't like really answer and then he would just dive in and just say she's preparing to be a wife and mother and he would be so happy like when he said it and I would just feel so just like degraded and demeaned but now I I know like I was like being exploited for an agenda like (laughs) this is what all women should be doing and you have to you have to almost act like a robot in order to survive that like you're getting the input and you were supposed to output whatever they tell you and if you don't do that if you have any like divergence from the plan then you can be cut off, right? So like you have to just be this programmable, objectified robot to survive. It's exactly. so dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then when there are people like the mothers or the or the fathers, because sometimes the matriarch is the one instigating mm-hmm. it that are just kind of towing the line, 
a lot of times they're the, they're perpetrators too, but a lot of times they're also just towing the line out of survival as well and just kind of have just turned off their brain because to use their brain would be to recognize something was wrong and they and they just couldn't yeah go that way because of of the risk and then and then in these spaces like the women aren't allowed to have education they're not allowed to have careers like the, it is very difficult to leave when, yes. when you you don't have access to these these just basic human survival tools and mm-hmm. why I stayed in as long as I did was because of that very reason of just like not having a resume, not having real work experience, not having a college degree and nothing that would make me marketable so that I could have a living, you know, just just like take care of myself. Felt like, I feel like they could have covered that better in the documentary because they didn't talk about that transition too much of like, you grew up this way, especially for girls, you don't have work experience. A lot of times I know people who didn't have birth certificates or social security numbers or or transcripts or driver's license. I had to write my own high school transcripts to get into college when I was 26. Wow. I had to, I made it up mostly because I don't know what else to do. Yeah, (laughs) And uh, it's just like, it's so difficult Mm -hmm. to figure out how to live outside of this system. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to leave, you know, unless you, it becomes like a life or death situation. That's kind of what it was like for me. Yeah. It gets so bad that whatever the risk is on the other side is worth it because you just can't stay any longer or you have help outside help. And I like, I feel like that's part of my book is just these little pockets of people who did help and who Mm -hmm. like saw through the cracks, even though I wasn't even naming it as abuse at the time, I didn't know that it was abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, who just saw like something's not right and were willing to like stick their necks out and and help in tangible ways, like letting me borrow a car, <laughs> you know, like just like very little things that would help. And, and, but that requires that you have some access to some outside community, which in a lot of these spaces, like you don't have that, you don't have access to outside communities. Let's move on to talking about just like what the trauma looks like from these communities outside once you get out and what that looks like and some things that are that might show up for someone even after they have escaped and they are quote unquote free what what might that look like i think you you're trying to rebuild your sense of self because yourself doesn't the sense of self doesn't matter in this kind of a system where it's this high control religious group so so you're doing all this work to rebuild who you are you're trying to figure out how to make decisions what do you like what's your favorite color sometimes like to the point of like who am I as a person outside of this system and that takes a lot of time mm-hmm. and work, and it can be exhausting but it's so rewarding in the end but that I think the trauma shows up in all sorts of ways for everybody everybody's different for me you know nightmares panic attacks not like not being able to communicate well, not knowing how to ask for help. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things really showed up more and more after I left. I think I was in such a survival mode when I was in it that I couldn't even think about the pain. So yeah. that when I left, it felt like my body could feel all of those things. And even when I went through therapy, you know, you can like you bring up these emotions that you buried since you were a child. And you have to experience them 
as an adult. And that's difficult. I think it's necessary to process it, but it's like this delayed response mm-hmm. a lot of times. And also you're not allowed to really have much of an adolescence when you grow up this way. I so know. it's, it's kind of like you're you go teenage <laughs> stuff when you're like in your third like developmental period and you're not allowed to have it. Yeah. So you kind of leave kind of still a child, like, like mm-hmm. I left emotionally a 12 year old. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's like, so little things like get, I had like, you know, a secondary piercing in my ear and I was like, it's such a scary thing because it wasn't allowed or picking out different colored nail polish, like stuff like that. It can feel like such a rebellious thing, even though you should have gone through that when you were like 12, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) So it's just, it's different. And that's, that's just the way it is. Even little things, just like talking back to someone or like can can just throw you in a spiral of just like, oh my God, I'm just like a horrible person just for like expressing your needs. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I struggle with that. Like just feeling this like guilt for just needing anything. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Or saying that you don't like something or something is uncomfortable and to just kind of be powerless. And yeah. And you mentioned just like nightmares and like the panic attacks and, and those sorts of things are just like symptoms of CPTSD and PTSD and and the emotional flashbacks or the actual flashbacks that happen as a, as a symptom of PTSD and CPTSD, a very Mm -hmm. common not an official diagnosis. CPTSD can't be officially diagnosed as 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 a as a mental uh, disorder, but it's still it's still a real experience that so many people who live high control leave high control environments experience. And just like yeah, and just like the nightmares. I actually had a nightmare last night, and it's interesting to have a nightmare. I don't have them super often, but when I had the nightmare last night, and this is probably more my experience when I have nightmares now, it's. And just kind of just like an evidence of like hope for healing is like, I still have the nightmares. Those things still, still come up, but I, I feel like I have so much more agency within the nightmare. And sometimes the nightmares are like reenactment of me, like doing the thing that I wish I could have done at the time, like rescuing a sibling or talking back to my father or something that would allow me to, to exercise my agency that I wasn't able to do because it was dangerous. And so I'll kind of like relive those experience within my dreams. It's still, it's still a nightmare. It's still like not a pleasant dream. Uh, And so that stuff is still, you know, there, but just as I have learned to exercise agency in real life, it has helped exercise agency in the dream world. <laughs> so. so interesting. I feel like I've I've had the same kind of thing where the nightmares have shifted over the years and and I'm like talking back more in them or I, I have a voice where in the early ones I couldn't say anything. So yeah. it is interesting how we're we're healing in our brains, I think. And it just takes time. Yeah. And like the it will be like a, a sign of the trauma because when when we are experienced a trigger or activation it, it's making our body feel like we're back in the past of when that thing happened. But when we're having the trigger now, so when we'd have the trigger earlier and we would have those nightmares, we would literally feel like we're back in that situation. And, and I would wake up with just, you know, just like, you know, sweating and just freaking out and okay. Okay. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm like, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. And I have to just like remind myself like that I was safe, but now 
because I'm still having those. I'm still going back to those places, but it's like my body is able to remember, oh no, this is not real. Oh, you can talk back to your grandfather and tell him he's a piece of shit and nothing's going to happen because this is a dream. <laughs> so just like this kind of awareness. And so it's kind of cool to watch that progression just within our dreams I want to write a book about this this is so fascinating (laughs) so fascinating I think dreams are so fascinating for me they're very exhausting like I I dream all the time and it's really tiring but they are interesting of how we're processing our experiences and our subconscious Mm -hmm. did you ever do EMDR yeah yeah that helped with the made like the worst nightmares yeah Um, yeah for sure yeah I didn't I don't remember nightmares as a symptom after EMDR but I do remember just like inexplicable panic sometimes Mm -hmm. just like like even just like right before bed as like things were starting to calm down it was like my subconscious would just like wake up and I would just like start like panicking and would have to do yeah somatic things to just kind of calm my body yeah another thing is is decision making especially like for those of us who have kind of OCD tendencies or like religious OCD scrupulosity where I remember being a kid and just obsessed with like right and wrong and like trying to figure out the right thing to do all the time and it's it like did something in my head so now that I'm out and I've changed what I believe about those sorts of things I still feel like I'm I struggle with some decisions like I sometimes when I go to the grocery store and I'm trying to figure out which carton of eggs to buy like my brain, I'll just like stand there and I'll like look at all the eggs. Like there's, there's too many choices. And then there's the one side where it's like cage-free eggs. Right. And you're like, okay, well that seems like an ethical way to have chicken eggs. Right. But then it's like in a styrofoam container. And then my brain's like, well, that's not good for the planet. And then I see the other eggs that are in a cardboard container, but they're not cage-free. And I'm like, well, which one do I choose? Like it's, I'm, I'm, my brain is looking for this point system of like, which one is better. And like, that's not how reality always works. And we can easily try to figure out, try to figure out a new way of measuring right and wrong. And it's just way more complicated than that. Yeah. And even in a situation of eggs where that's not really even a category, you know, like right, wrong and eggs. (laughs) <laughs> isn't a category and that and that I think that comes out of these high control environments so everything is so binary yeah um, and so like that is I mean I, I would say 100% a result of trauma is is binary thinking and just like like it has to be this or it has to be this and and right. I think kind of get into like I think it'll be right and wrong in those spaces and then we get out of it and it becomes safe or unsafe and yes. like do do are you a safe person or are you not or is this a safe thing or is this not a safe thing and so so having the integration with our right and our left brain of being able to have to be able to have that integration and be able to see gray and be able to sit in uncertainty and ambiguity and and be able to see compromise like that is that is part of the journey of getting to that place and that ambiguity can be really anxiety inducing Right. So like, for me, it's like, I try to limit my time on those kinds of decisions. Like, okay, I'm not going to think about this very long. I mean, I don't know what the perfect choice is, right? Maybe there is no perfect choice. I'm going to pick the one that's cheaper or the one, you know, that's available to me right now. And maybe that's, you know, there's no binary 
ethical versus not ethical. Like we make a, a variety of choices with a spectrum of, of these kinds of value systems that we're all operating on mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure out your own new ethics. Right. So that's just yes. difficult. And I'm trying to give my, myself grace for that and time okay. and don't have to spend a long time on little decisions um, all the time. You know? So do you like physically set a timer for yourself? <laughs> no, now. Yeah, no, I don't usually do that, but I just try not to like, I just try like, I have the thought and then I try to like, let it go. My therapist says like, you let the, it's kind of like picturing a house where the like impulsive or the compulsive thought comes into your head. And then you just like walk it out to the back door and you say goodbye. Like okay. you acknowledge that it's there, but I don't have to dwell or, or live with this thought. So if you have OCD, like you can get in kind of like thought spirals. Mm-hmm. So when you're making decisions, it can be difficult. So that kind of metaphor can help like just limit the time you spend thinking about those things. Yeah. Yeah. Like acknowledge it and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> move on, move on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And yeah. And yeah. Even, like, as you said, like we're forming, we are forming an ethic completely from scratch and we're having to do that with a traumatized body and a traumatized brain. Yeah. And so it's very, very challenging and mm-hmm. not something to shame ourselves for or, or rush through, like just taking the time that it needs. What are some other things that have helped you on your recovery journey? So many things. I feel like being able to choose like the decision-making is, is a process, right. But then the ability to choose has meant so much to me mm-hmm. being able to choose what movie I want to go see or what book I want to read those little choices of freedom and like shifting my thinking around them of like, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And just being okay with like desiring things and following that desire and like, Oh, I want to do this. I'm going to go do that mm-hmm. instead of like worried about, should I do that? Or is that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to find things that matter to me. Another thing is being outside and like being grounded in the world around me, because if I stay inside by myself too long, like I get stuck in my head and I can dwell on the past and feel stuck. Right. But if I just go outside and like feel the grass or like look up at the sky, I mean, I know lots of people have said that, but take that mental health walk it really does get you out of your head a little bit and make you feel grounded in reality instead of the past. And that's, that's one of the biggest helps for me is just being able to go outside. I feel like that's probably because of the sensory, sensory mm-hmm. elements of being outside of like the wind and the smells and the sights. And that is like a huge part of the trauma because of that element of it kind of putting your body back in the past and you feeling as right. if you're back in that situation, anything that helps us into the presence. And that can be mindfulness. That could be just mindful eating walks, like you said, just like outside and that just bilateral stimulation of both of our, our feet on the ground. And yoga it, is really helpful. Boba? Yoga. Yoga. <laughs> Boba too. (laughs) Yeah. Yoga. Yoga is a huge part without me even realizing it probably before I was even using actively using the word abuse for my family, encountering yoga as a, to help me sleep because insomnia is a part of 
PTSD, CPTSD and doing yoga to help me sleep and, and, and that starting to have an impact on my body before I even ever went to therapy of wow. experiencing that. Cause that is a very like grounded presence and in, in our bodies situation, other things that can help just like intuitive writing and just like tapping into our intuition. And as you've mentioned so many times of choice and being able to access choice and access our agency, a lot of the way we do that is, is by listening to like deep down little gut voice in us that had been so suppressed in these spaces of just like, what do I even want? Like, what are, what are my desires? What are the, what are the things even coming up? And what am I even feeling <laughs> like being able to name emotions because there were some emotions that we were allowed to have and other emotions that were sinful and like, no, people who trust God don't have depression. So no, depression yeah. doesn't exist for you because you're a Christian and Christians don't have it. And, and having just like expanding that vocabulary and that awareness and then and then therapy modalities such as like EMDR, somatic modalities, neuroeffective touch, getting massages, things that just like help us be in our body are really helpful. And on also this is not this is developmental trauma a lot of times. And so there's gonna be some reparenting involved and having to like be the parent to ourselves that we didn't have the parent that we didn't have. And as you had mentioned, the adolescence and kind of like reliving our adolescence and getting to like, just be teenagers again, <laughs> and like do, do dumb things that teenagers do and, and make those dumb stumbling mistakes. And yes, it's awkward because we're full grown adults and we shouldn't <laughs> have to make these mistakes. And just like having to like kind of relive those experiences and and give ourselves those experiences and, and learn how to, to play and, and stuff when we just weren't really allowed to do that, or it was very restricted and like what was allowed and what was acceptable. And so just getting to experience our full humanity, which can sound yeah. super overwhelming. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that can be really like helpful. I mean, I think both of us do this is writing down. Mm -hmm. journaling it could be journaling it could be trying to write down your story it could be just for yourself it could be for someone you love and like sharing your story with them but just writing it for yourself I think can help you process especially by hand I think yeah. if you write down by hand it slows your brain down and it can help you process like what happened and then put the pieces together especially like timelines can be really tricky with this kind of trauma Absolutely. so writing it down can help you feel like you're not crazy these things did happen and it can help you put those pieces together. So like, you can feel like your memory is more whole because our brains help protect us that way. You know, they, we hold our traumatic memories differently. I believe I'm not a, I'm not an expert, but that's how my experience has been. Absolutely. And on having, and not giving yourselves rules for that too. Cause I know even now chronological order is hard for me. And yeah. it just feels way too overwhelming. And yeah. so to have it, to like write it in, in, as it comes to you and, and write it in, in the fragments that are being presented and eventually they'll start to connect and it may take years of writing it down and that's okay. Just writing all the pieces, like you said, it starts to make sense to you in a way that your brain can handle it and you can be able to tell whoever you want your story if you want to. Yeah. By telling it to yourself first. 
Yeah. And I know that those are, those are helpful for me to like, I'll write things down and just like little pieces and then I'll like read pieces of it to my therapist to just kind of mm-hmm. help her understand. Cause it's like really important. I know for survivors, a lot of times, like they just need to know that you understand, like, please, yeah. please. I just need you to know, understand. And so it, it helps me know that it's helping her understand, but then also she will, she will pick up on things sometimes in, in the story and we'll have like a reaction to something that I just had just kind of brushed aside and she'll be like, that was not okay. And I'm like, oh, you're right. That was really fucked up. Like that should not have happened. And, and, and having that extra witness of it can be, can be helpful in the process of just having someone reflect it back to you and, and notice things. Yeah. I feel like I need to take a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it is. Any anything else you want to say? I think what I'm hoping from this documentary is that it can help people who've experienced these things, but also it can be for people who have not experienced them and they can see what that looks like, mm-hmm. especially with child abuse. They didn't mention like they didn't talk a lot about the producers of the show of the Duggars and they're filming. Mm-hmm. Like, I know like they were, wa- they were there. there. They were there. And like, they mentioned, they showed a clip from the show of like, this child is, you know, her, her chore is 10 loads of laundry a day. And I'm like, that's child labor. Yep. That's not okay. And you can't, you're filming it also. So it's like this double layer of exploitation. But that stuff happened without, you know, for families who weren't on TV. And so if you're noticing families where that's happening, where children are being exploited or they're not moving out when they're adults, like ask questions, talk to the kids if you can. I mean, that might sound strange, but even little things that people said to me, like, are you okay? Or like, are you okay with this? After I turned 18 and I felt like I couldn't leave, one person said that to me and it like, it's it struck a match. And I was like, oh, like other people don't do this. And other people are not just blindly accepting yeah. the world. You're not going to be able to fix all of these problems by yourself as mm-hmm. an outsider, but just being present and saying something, if you see something, being a supportive person, mm-hmm. like you said, sharing a car if, with somebody who might need it, like little things like that can make a big difference in your mm-hmm. life when you're trapped. So I hope that this, this kind of conversation in the documentary can help bring more awareness because this happens a lot. Yeah. And I think that that's a good reminder and of like, I I think about that all the time of the people that I'm still connected to who are still in fundamentalism, people who were in the cult version, but are still just like staunchly religious and are adopting some of the same things and, and just like navigating what's my role and knowing that I wished more people would have done something, but then at the same time, knowing there wasn't a whole lot that anyone could have done because none of the abuse or very little of the abuse was something that would be considered illegal. So it really happened. It had to be, we had to be adults. Like we couldn't have left as minors. There was no, no help for us as minors and just like, what is my role? But then I think that that's a helpful reminder of like, 
like maybe going to the children, don't try and convince the parents to not do it, but just like let the children know, hey, if you want to write me a letter or yeah. hey, here's my phone number if you ever want to talk. Even just like being interested in their individuality and showing that they matter, that has such a big impact on children. Like asking them, what's, what's your favorite thing to do? Like you yourself, not your family. What do you like? What kind of books do you like? And just being interested in that shows them that they can be themselves. And I think building up that sense of self yeah. from the outsider can, can really help down the road. <laughs> yeah. Having that experience of being seen and having that to contrast with an experience of not being seen or an experience of only having those things about you being exploited to have someone just like really value you for your individuality is I think would be really helpful and was really helpful Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in the escape process. Hi, Catherine here again. This was a heavier episode than normal. So if you find you are activated, I invite you to take a moment to ground yourself and take some deep breaths before moving on to the next thing in your day. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.